Zach, I'm coming in hot today. I've got a burden to share. Wow. Uh, You have the mic. I'm convicted that we as humans have bought into a social construct that is not in fact reality. Okay. Uh, Explain. Two words. Dog years. (laughs) That is just that this conversation will bring no benefit to society, but it's about to. It it needs to be said. All right. Okay. Say it. You say it. Riddle me. Riddle me this, Zach. Say it. I'll say it. Okay. Just riddle me this. Uh, you're riddled. Okay. How do we how do we quantify a year? What what is how, what is the moment that we're like it has been one year? Uh, we go around the sun. Correct. So the Earth rotates are around the sun one time. That's a year. Yeah. So a human year would be one rotation around the sun. Okay. We have some reason decided to give dogs roughly seven years. <laughs> I For every time they revolve around the sun, why can we not just say dogs? That why I, I just I'm confused as to help me understand Zach. I'm getting heated here, but I think right. it's for a worthy cause. I do too. I think it it is confusing on the surface, but it's like, how long do does the average dog live? Uh, I don't know. I'm highly allergic. Oh, to I dogs. forgot. Like thirteen to fifteen years. Okay. And so they're like when a dog is 12 to 13 years old in human years, it would be about they would act the same and their body would respond the same as that of a 80, 90 year old human. So but why? But why, though, is what I was my response to you. Why do we have to not? Why can't we just be confident in saying when dogs get 13 to 15, they start to get old? That's old for them. Right. Do we have other, like, are there cat years? Are there flies that fly around? Are there fly years? Flies don't last long. They don't. So how many years is that for them? Like 40. I know. If, the, if a fly makes it a whole human year, I think that's a miracle. Yeah. I, I don't. There's I, no, I have no research. I have no fly up. buddies, and I have no flies that I've actually kept up with long enough to know if that's capable. But we're losing the point because the point is dog years is a ridiculous social construct that people are buying into. So what's your solution? We say this dog is two years old because it's rotated around the sun for two years. It's, it's, it's completed the cycle twice. So it's two years so old. So it's 14 years old. You fool. <laughs> I'm just saying a two-year-old dog would act the same as a 14-year-old human. Okay, so let's just – why can't we just say that's the case? Why do we have to say dog years? Why can't we just say dogs mature faster because they have a shorter life cycle? Because <laughs> that's wordy. No, it's, it, it eliminates – they're literally still doing studies and trying to redefine what a dog year is. Be, yeah, because it doesn't make It's sense. a waste of science, Zacharias. Yeah, okay, that's where I, I will say if we have money – funneling into researchers studying dog years foolishness we have lost it officially lost it and here's the that's deal. where i'm with you i know that i'm offending dog owners right now yeah i mean they'll be all right also i'm highly allergic to dogs right which could also fuel some of your anger very fair so so we'll we can own that we can own that I'll own i that. love dogs you do love dogs and that's a whole nother issue we'll, we'll get into that later but I still think it's okay if we just say, hey, a dog year, in a dog's life, one human year equals seven for them. Let's just call it that. Why are we researching it? Why are we researching it? Why do we? It's just a year, though. It's a year. Dogs don't get to be older. They can mature faster, <laughs> but they don't get to be older than the amount of times they've circled the sun. You know, I think this is a pride thing for you. I think you see an immature dog that in your time is seven years old, and it's what? 
49 years old. Now, I think this is a debate that we fully disagree on. Okay. So I think we need to turn to the listeners. Okay. Listeners, please reach out to us on social media. Please. We have a Twitter now. Yes. Plug your Twitter. NXT GEN Leader Pod. Next Gen Leader Pod. Okay. So find us on Twitter. Find us on Instagram. Yep. Which is the same tag. Yep. Find us on LinkedIn, Facebook. Please, we need to assemble and decide our dog years worth the research they're being shown. I, I totally agree. And our dog years, is it a thing? Or if you don't have social media, leave a review on the podcast. That would be awesome. Five-star review, of course. Of course. And then let us know if dog years are worth investing in. Should we just say it's a year? Should we? Where do you stand on the spectrum? Right. Give us your thoughts. We want to hear from you. And if you like the podcast, leave a review. Re- leave a review in general. That helps that us out a ton. It helps us out a ton. We're putting all this work in for y'all. Just, hey. Just leave a review. And be honest. Don't feel like you have to do five yeah. stars. We want to be number one we in the We want to improve. We want to be number one in the Philippines. Welcome to the Next Generation Leader Podcast, where we believe great leaders are listeners, especially during their youth. Good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes, but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them. I'm your host, Zach Funderburg, here with my co-host, Koopy McCooperson. That is my name on the streets with a K. <laughs> and... We just need to learn from the mistakes of the leaders that spent time investing in dog years. <laughs> and move away from <laughs> it. Move away from it. Speaking of learning from a wise, wise leader, this is Tim Hanna. Mm, and then let me guess, the new proud owner of your favorite episode. He won the title this week. I mean. I love it. So I, do you remember, so yeah, we actually filmed this yesterday or recorded this yesterday. You were in the other room. I, I come out of recording. Do you remember what I said? Um, well, you were at a loss for words, okay. is what I remember. Okay, but then I, I scrounged up my words, finally. And you said... That was just some good old wisdom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is what you said. You said that's just some good old-fashioned wisdom right yeah. there. It was like, nothing is fancy about this interview. That's why I love it. It's real. And it's like, he doesn't have these pithy statements that right. rhyme and sound good. And it's like, yeah, rah, rah, let's go do this. Yeah, He's just lived it. And he's just done it. Yeah. Let me tell you who Tim Hanna is. Tim Hanna has devoted his life to Jesus Christ, working in the ministry. Him and his wife accepted Jesus after they got married, which is awesome. That he is tells awesome. the story in here as well. But then later in his life, he becomes the CEO of Compassion International Worldwide. And we yeah. all know Compassion, Compassion Child. You can you can make the boxes and send them for Christmas. Yeah. An amazing ministry. He's reaching out. He is fighting for people in poverty, and he's doing it well. He's no longer the CEO there. He he retired and is now just meeting with leaders and coaches and trying to, to coach them with the wisdom. But we talk about a culturally healthy team. Yeah. Like, what does it look like to have a healthy team culture for a leader, how do how do leaders do that? And then if you're on a team, how do you build that with camaraderie with the people around you? And let me tell you, Tim did it extremely well, and he shares it extremely well, too. There's nothing fancy. You're not going to write any just notes in here that rhyme. There, there's nothing tweetable. Yeah. It's just applicable. Applicable. It's applicable, and it's so good. I don't want to waste any more time. Here he is, Tim Hanna. Yep. Okay, we're on. You ready? I am indeed. Let's do it. Well, Tim, thank you so much for being with us. It's so nice to meet you. I want to start by just letting you introduce yourself. Who are you? What's kind of your story? How did you get to where you are today in leadership? Zach, thanks again for the opportunity, the invitation. Really appreciate that. Gee, to give you a thumbnail sketch of all those years of mine, uh, I'll go back to the beginning. I was I was born in Ireland uh, with some Irish heritage and 
and came out as a migrant to Australia when I was nine years of age. Now in in Ireland, you're either we we didn't I didn't come from a church family. Um, we were in Ireland. You're either nominally Catholic or Protestant. We were sort of nominally Protestant. Nobody practiced, so right. family didn't have no faith, no faith uh, journey in, in in our family. Come out to Australia, loved Australia. Um, grew up. I'd have to say that I love fell in love with sport. And uh, if I was to say it, sport was my god. I wouldn't be too far wrong for a lot yeah. of those years. I was the same age. way. Yeah, grew up in. Uh, went to high school. Did quite well there. Um, went to university, studied economics, met my wife at university. Mm. So uh, we, I was doing economics, she was doing arts. We married young. I was 20, she was 18. Wow. And uh, neither of us were believers at, uh, at that stage. And two years after we were married, mm. we both just made a choice to follow Jesus. So that was a very exciting time. And then after that, it was pretty, you know, just to quickly go through that, I went to, uh, I went to a theological seminary for four years had three ministries over 30 years, the senior pastor of three different churches. Mm. Um, and uh, I was also taught in a theological college for four, almost four years. Wow. And then came into Compassion, into the leadership role of Compassion. So it's been a journey over those 40 years, Zach, Amazing. and uh, it's up and down and loved it. It's great. Amazing. Well, I kind of want to go back real fast to you're, yeah. you're married young and you don't know Jesus. What yeah. was that like? And then did you all come to, come to faith together or was it separately? And then y'all came together and kind of had this realization of Jesus is where life is found. Yeah, look, uh, uh, we were married for a couple of years. After about 18 months of marriage, my wife firstly started searching more than, you know, more than I did. Sort of she came from a broken family and was sort of wanting some meaning and purpose and started looking. And I guess coming from a nominal Protestant background in Ireland, you kind of have a God consciousness, but you think you are. So I remember saying to her things like, well, don't go overboard on this religion stuff, thinking that, you know, that I was really, I was okay. Right. And then one day she was, she was working with a uh, young lady at work who was a Christian and just shared her faith with her. Mm. And one day at work on, on Monday lunchtime, I remember it, she gave her life to the Lord one Monday lunchtime. And then um, on uh came home and told me and I remember thinking, well, that's great. Now we're both Christians. I remember saying that but straight away I knew straight away I knew I wasn't. So I went to a youth rally at her friend's church, her workmates church on the Saturday night and gave my life to the Lord then. So we became Christians within five days of each other, wow. which I'm really grateful for. Oh, yeah. I mean, best decision so, uh, you ever made. It was. So now we've been married uh, 47 years wow. and we have, uh, we have nine kids and 24 grandkids. Nine kids. Wow. <laughs> That is amazing. So yeah. you're going through ministry, you find Jesus with your wife, and then you end up yeah. at Compassion Australia. You're the, you're the yeah. chief executive officer. Kind of explain to the listeners what Compassion is, what was your role there, what, what did y'all do? Yeah, well, Compassion itself globally works in 12 resourcing countries and 25 um, field countries. And uh, working with releasing children, our whole tagline and vision is to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. And, and, and that's, uh, you know, holistic child development, food security, health care, education, clean water, and linking people in with a local church where they can hear the good news of Jesus. So that's the holistic nature of it. So I went in there. I was quite, I wasn't expecting to be in that role. It, right. it came, it wasn't come accidentally, but it, it was a surprise. And, um, yeah, loved it. Uh, and so I was leading the team in Australia that was helping to raise awareness and funds to support 
kids and families in those 25 countries. It was a fantastic job. I loved it. It was for me like a, a convergence of all that I'd done before. So the gospel, the church, the poor, all in one role. It was fantastic. I mean, that, that honestly sounds like the dream job. That's amazing. <laughs> it was great. I, I loved it. So how long were you, you with Compassion? Uh, just 11 years. Okay. So 10 years as CEO. So I worked, in, I worked as a year in another role, but 10 years as CEO. Okay. That's awesome. And you were able to really cultivate and create a really healthy and, and successful team from what I've read about you and what I've heard. So that's really kind of what we want to talk about, what it looks like as a leader to build a healthy team culture throughout the team you're leading. And obviously, as the chief executive officer of Compassion Australia, you're, you're in a head leadership role. You're in an executive role. And so people look to you and you really set the pace of the team and of, of which way you want the culture to go. So as a leader, how did you help create the culture of Compassion Australia? What, what kind of played into that? Sure. Well, I mean, I think I, I come from the basis where if you can bring health, health will bring growth. So you can aim for growth in yeah. all sorts of ways and you can get it in all sorts of ways. But if you can get it through health, then health will bring growth. So my aim was to build a healthy culture. Mm. And, uh, and we, you know, we needed a healthy culture and compassion been going or probably in Australia about 30 years by that stage and, you know, just going on. But we just needed a healthy culture. So and you're right, the, the, the key leader is the one who sets that culture. He right. or she have to set set that. So, I mean, for me, I, I came into that role not expecting to be in it in a sense. So a little bit nervous, a little bit, oh, boy, don't mess this up. This right. is a great ministry. Whatever you do, don't muck it up. So, uh, you know, without a real lot of experience in, in that sort of CEO type role. But I, one of the things I did early, and I'm glad I did it, and it was kind of just like got to do something. Right. Um, I got all the staff together in, in groups of about 10 or 12, so about 140 staff, so, you know, t- 10 or 15 groups together and, and just asked two questions. I had an hour around a table with each group saying, what is it about here you would like not to be the case when you come to work? So what makes it difficult to come to work here? Mm-hmm. And secondly, what would make it really fun to come to work here? What would you like to do? What would you like to be in place that would make working at Compassion uh, really a great place to be. So we just answered those two questions for about an hour, an hour and a half in each group. And then we distilled, uh, myself and my HR manager distilled those answers into about eight um, core values for how we work together. Not core values of the organization so much of how we worked out there, but core values of how we work together. And then after a little while, we, we, we uh, distilled those down to five, and we had five core values that each one had a easy to remember, but each one had a question underneath it. That um, that was how we worked together. That's how we operate. So, if you want to know them very quickly, there, of course. trust God, trust God, be well. And that's our physical and healthy yeah. being. Um, it was value others, achieve together, which is about collaboration and breaking down silos, and then growing through challenges. So when challenges come up, we're going to come up with solutions. We're not going to complain about the challenges. So they're the five values. And each one of those had a question mark yeah. and, and a question underneath it, not a question mark. So so we, we did that. And the great thing about that was it wasn't imposed by me. So the, we set them all together. We right. distilled them all together. So if, if they are broken somehow, it's not up to me to be the policeman. We can help each other both get on track if we're off track. We can also champion each other when we see it and it becomes owned rather than compliance. Because if you, right. I think if you set those values and say from above, these are the values we, are, we have, 
you get compliance. But if we set them together in some way, you get ownership. And mm. that's what you want. So we did that. And that that's began the cultural journey. And we would come back to it regularly. We'd come back. So yeah, you have to keep communicating that. And so um, that's probably the, the best thing I did in that first right. few months of, of being a compassionate set is that well. well yeah. Oh. Oh, there you are. Yeah. I, I mean, that's amazing. There was so much in there. I want to go back to something you started with where you said health brings growth. What do yeah. you, what would you define health as? If you're looking at a team, what is a healthy team? Oh, a healthy team, I think is one that really trusts each other. Mm. Um, and I would define team a slightly different way. So we said, we tend to define team as a group of people who work together. I would say that's not a team. A team is a group of people who trust each other which is very different. So you can have working groups all over the place. So we, we have to build, uh, build trust. So I would encourage with my executive team and for their teams to make sure we, we try to build trust in that team. That means, you know, having to be vulnerable, having to be authentic. And as a leader of any team, you have to take the lead in that. Be appropriately vulnerable. It's not, it's not like you throw out all everything you, you are at, at all at once, but but to be appropriately vulnerable with your team and that'll build trust. And that trust is the thing that allows you to, to uh, build health. And part of that will be having some meetings um, that are agendaless. So, you know, when we meet together as functioning teams, we want to get the agenda done. We want to get the execution happening, et cetera. But uh, sometimes you just need meetings that are agendaless. Maybe they're offsite. We're just going to go away for half a day and, and, might be two or three questions we answer together. So it's not all about just getting the work done. It's actually about building trust. Mm. I I love that because I think that's where a lot of teams miss it or where they fail is they don't trust each other. And it really comes down to those agendaless meetings because they're so focused on going into meetings, they're getting the things done, but they don't have time to just know who each other really are. And, and how to get to know each other and how to work well together. You talked about internal values and external values and like yeah. your company's compassions, external values, and then the team's internal values. And you listed those and I think they're amazing, but kind of break those down. How did y'all get to those? Because it sounded like it was, it was from the people you were leading and you said it created ownership. How important is ownership to those internal values? Ownership is almost everything. So those values, we we use them to recruit by those. We will say to people, these are our main values. Are there any of those that you feel you can't live by? Um, because that'll, that'll settle whether you should work here or not. Right. So uh, we do all that. And so, yeah, the internal values are crucial. We, we just needed to get to them together. And I guess the reason I wanted to go to five rather than eight is very simply, and it's, this is going to sound almost too simple, right. but uh, I could count them on one hand. Yeah. So simple. If I'm thinking about our values, there they are, there's five of them, you know, trust God. And the question underneath is, um, am I trusting God and, and, and maintaining joy in all circumstances? That's the question, you know, be well. Am I um, looking after myself physically, spiritually, emotionally, and socially? You know, so they're the questions, value others. Am I championing others and, and seeing the value? So it's, it's kind of wanting those five and, uh, one of, the, one of our mantras which helped us build that culture was simplicity and passion. So if we can make things simple, not simplistic, because the work we did wasn't simplistic, it was right. complex. But if we can make that complexity of, you know, 40 countries all together, different cultures, but trying to make that um, simple, 
um, then simplicity builds passion and complexity kills passion. Mm. And and we had to be very intentional about that because you don't drift into simplicity. You tend to drift into complexity. Mm. Um, you have to be intentional about simplicity. So the more clear, the more clarity we could give towards our purpose and our why, yep. That's an, um, we would keep our why, our why releasing children from poverty. We need to come back to that all the time because you can mm. drift, get mission drift real easy. Yeah, great teams are always focused on on their why, the why they're doing things. You can get people to do the what, you, you can inspire them by why we're doing why yeah. we're doing what we're doing. And that's what makes people move. And I want to talk about the vision. You, compassion has a vision and leaders have a vision and a mission of where we want the team to go. How does having a direct and clear, like what you talked about, mission uh, play into a healthy team? Yeah, I think it's important. I mean, our, our mission and our, our mission is to release children of poverty in Jesus' name. Our vision is to see transformed communities. Right. And here's here's the thing. I think it's important for me to un- that I've had to understand is that vision is motivational, but it's not transformational. What's transformational is the execution of that vision and putting it into practice. Right. So, I mean, I many times maybe you have too. You see, churches or organisations have have. Vision and there's a great vision that is um, cast, but then you come back again a year later and it has, nothing much has changed. The vision is motivational, but having a vision doesn't um, transform us. It's putting the practices and the habits and the execution into place that makes a difference. If I could put it this way, I might have a vision for uh, uh, Tim Hanna, 10 kilograms lighter, which wouldn't yeah. be a bad vision. Yeah. But the, the vision, and I'll be motivated by that, but having the vision doesn't transform me. What transforms me is putting into practice the habits that, mm. that carry out that vision. So what, what good culture does, good culture makes the, the carrying out of those habits and the carrying out of that execution uh, more effective. That's what mm. culture does. And I think habits are good because they're something that you can tangibly do time and time again. And it's, it's a slow progression of keeping those habits to get you to the final destination of where you want to go. But I, where, where do teams fall into missing habits? Because I feel like well, I know that it takes a while to develop a habit. So where do you get as a leader the motivation to motivate your team to, to continue through and to press on to continue a habit so that you can create an organization and a healthy culture that you want to? Yeah, it's, it's a great question because I think there's this phrase habit stacking. It's about stacking one good habit on top of another right? and, and seeing what the difference it makes. I think I think it boils down to communication. One of the things that I've re- I realized over the years is that you have to keep communicating the why and communicating the way to get there, even though for you you've heard it so many times and you think to yourself, gee, I've got this. Everybody should get this. Right. Not everybody does. You have to keep communicating it. And you call out when you see good practice. So when you see it happening, you champion it. You call it out. Um, and so it's, it's a bit like public praise, private criticism. So if you see somebody performing really well, you'll you know, champion that person, say, this, yeah. that person did this and it was great. If, if they're not doing so well, it's better to do that privately to start, you know, to start with and say, look, right. you know, maybe we needed to pick it up a bit. But, but I, think, I think you've got to call it out when you see it and not be afraid to call it out. 
Yeah. Yeah. The kind of the support challenge matrix, if you will, a lot of leaders are willing to support and encourage when necessary, but they're not willing to challenge when it's needed. And so then there, there's a slow drift away from say the status quo of the team and we start losing the idea of the why. And that's where the constant reminder comes in. But I love that. And what it sounds like is you as a CEO of compassion created a, a culture of feedback. So what did that look like of you? You mentioned it, the public praise and private criticism, what did it look like to provide feedback and even celebrate wins? How would y'all do that? Yeah, I mean, I think feedback's a, a gift if it's done well. Mm. Now, some feedback's not done well, but there might still be a kernel of truth in it that you, sometimes you have to go, oh, you didn't say that well, but I get right. what you're saying. But nevertheless, right. feedback as well. And I would have um, hopefully created a, a culture that says you should never be afraid to ask any question in this organization. If you ever feel like you're walking on eggshells or tiptoeing around something or somebody, then then that's a, that's a danger sign. So we I think I think curiosity is a superpower. So so uh, I would encourage people to be curious, not just about your area of work, but how does the other other areas of work work and, and not be afraid to ask the CEO, not be afraid to ask me or any of the leaders a question that's on your mind. And so we would champion that sort of culture of, of curiosity, of freedom to ask questions, nothing's taboo, um, and, and do that and, and say feedback. You might get some feedback and people have one-on-ones with their, with their uh, you know, workers and, and people who report to them. Um, and that's, that's great. And there'll be feedback in that. But feedback well done is, is a gift because it helps, you, it helps you become a better version of yourself. Right. And, all the time we should be endeavoring to become better versions of ourselves. That's so true. I, I love the the idea of, of feedback as a gift because I think even in that feedback builds trust with a team and you know that that person is for you because they want to make you a better person. They want to make you a better worker, coworker, and ultimately make the team better if you're providing feedback, not just encouragement. I, I think that's huge. What is it? Sometimes it's like? not, some, sorry, sometimes it's no, not given all that well. Sometimes it's not given all that well, but Still, you've got to you've got to take it, and you well, might yeah, have to so take someone. Is, yeah, is there another way to say that, baby? Yeah. Well, yeah. What uh, what did that? What does that look like? Because I feel like a lot of leaders miss it because of the tone in which they give feedback. So for you, I'm sure in your your experiences, you've done it well and you've done it poorly. What what did you learn from either the misses or the ways you've done it well, where giving feedback was received graciously uh, because of the way? Yeah, Look, I, I would I try to live by this mantra. Not always easy, but try to live it myself. That I, I'm going to choose not today not to be offended. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm going to make a choice today. I'm not going to be offended by people or by things, and encourage my staff to live the same way. So you choose that. So even if it's given poorly, um, I'm not going to be offended. I'm going to try and take out it. But I will come back to you and say, you know, mate, there's another way to say that, another way to ask that question that will get to the nub of the answer without you putting people on the back foot before they get to the front foot. Right. So uh, I wouldn't be afraid to, to have that conversation with someone and say, there's a, there's a different way to do it. It's not, that's not part of our value of valuing others. 
when you come at me like that, you're not living our, our values out. Mm, so that's good. Back you can always values. go back to the values because they Absolutely. anchor the team. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. so good. And I think it also always anchors in transparency, like what you were talking about. Because I think a lot of teams look at their CEO or their leader and they see somebody who's untouchable or someone that they can't really talk to or connect with. So you being in that role, how did you kind of come off the balcony, if you will, and be in with the people and, and encourage them and, and it created a culture where they felt like they could ask a question to the CEO. Yeah. Well, fortunately, I don't sit at a desk well all day, so I'm up and about a bit, and uh, you know, I, I walk around the the uh, the whole the offices, catch up, you know, say hello to people a couple of times a day at least, um, and uh, maybe sit, go down at morning tea time and just share a cup of coffee with people. I would do that, and and not just talk about work. I try and remember things about their, their lives and, you know, if someone's mum's going into hospital, how did that go? If someone's child is just graduating from college, how did that go? Um, so I try and remember things about people and, and genuinely care. It wasn't, it wasn't a technique. Right. I genuinely care about them enough to go, uh, you know, how's it going for you? And, mm. and, and, and people would appreciate that. And so they would then feel like it's it's this balance between how much of a friend and how much of a CEO are you? Yeah. And somehow walking that walking that tightrope somewhere sometimes. But I I didn't feel it was a problem most of the time. There are occasionally where you thought, maybe if I have I have I been too friendly that I can't say the the hard thing. Right. But that's that was rare. Yeah. Well let's talk about that tightrope because I think that's a that's a hard place because I feel like if you walk that tightrope, it's ultimately because you want to be liked or you want to be seen as someone who is likable or someone who can come down on their level. But as you said, it's a gift and it's just as much important to be a challenger, to be able to push back and to give feedback. So kind of how do you walk that tightrope of boss and friend? Hmm. That's a great question and not an easy one. And I think, I think that 30 year ago, Tim Hanna, I would have probably said I wanted to be liked too much. Hmm. You know, so uh, you, you walk that. You know, we're good mates, and I won't say the hard, the hard, the hard question or the hard statement. Uh, but I think over the years, you you gain a bit of a a willingness to say, "Look, I, I'm not here to be popular. Mm. I'm here to do the right thing, and I believe this is the right thing." And the other thing is, I remember hearing some time ago somebody challenging our, our whole team and saying, "Make sure you have the last five or ten percent of a conversation." Don't just have a conversation that's a tough conversation and then leave the last, make the last five or 10% clear so that you're not just talking about someone's future, but you might say, now you understand that in a month's time, we're going to transition you out. You understand that and, and try and keep the truth. Ultimately, the truth sets you free. So make sure the truth doesn't get um, worn away or eroded by your need to be liked. Right. And, that is that is a that is a tightrope to walk, and occasionally you come down on the. We've all got personality types, and probably one that somebody's personality might be to come down too soft most of the time. Somebody else's personality might be to come a bit brutal most of the time. It's just keeping that tightrope and walking it well. And I think the more people see you and trust you, um, the more they they will even forgive those times when you overbalance one of those. I think a lot of times when leaders lose trust or yeah, lose the trust of those they're leading is when there's expectations that are missed or they don't provide clarity for, for those they're leading. So kind of talk about that. How, how do we fight against setting unreal expectations or not providing clarity? What's the best way to provide clarity for those you lead? 
Oh, gee, clarity is a crucial issue for any organization. And right. without clarity, people get confused. And that's when you get mission drift because am I meant to do that? Am I not meant to do that? So I think that's the clarity of execution. What, what do, in, in this role, in this job of whatever, relationship from poverty or in our local church or whatever it might be, what is the clarity of my job? People need to know what they're expected to do. And if you're not, if you're not sure, you should work, spend more time working out that than actually supervising, if you like. So work out first, does everybody know what they are meant to go away from here and do? If you're in a new job or in, or, or in a role, do you know what's, what's required of you? And if you're not, let's talk that through. So spend the time on getting the clarity of the expectation rather than just being a bit, bit blurry about that and all the time then having to follow up saying, no, you're not doing it right, you're not doing it right. So it's making clarity is an issue and, 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 and emphasize it all the time and come back to it, come back to it regularly. And I think, I think one of the things that we, we're not sometimes good at, particularly in the Christian world, I think, is, that, is being honest and, and, and just calling out reality. One of the things in leadership is to call out reality. I don't know, you've probably seen this happen, but we, we aim for something. So it's as if you can imagine a wall, there's a target on a wall, and we aim for that target. But we actually hit the wall here somewhere else. Right. Instead, of, instead of saying we didn't make it, we actually draw a target around where we've hit. We say, <laughs> weren't, we, weren't we great? Didn't we do a good job? You know, um, um, we we did this, but we haven't really addressed the fact that we didn't hit the target. Mm-hmm. That was was that clear enough? Was it clear enough? That's where we were going. Right. Was there something about that that we can learn for next time? So I think evaluation is a crucial part of, mm. of getting clarity for next time. Right. I think, yeah. And it's even constant evaluation because the mission drift, which I've never heard it put like that. And I love just the term mission drift. Mission drift is, is slow. It's not always just like all of a sudden we realize, Whoa, we, we missed the target today. It's day after day. It's kind of those habits we were talking about slowly. Yeah. We're falling off track and therefore it's kind of a slow drip away from the mission. Our mission is drifting. So how as a leader, can we, actively identify, hey, we're drifting from our goals or our missions or our purposes. Let's re- let's course correct to finish where we want to go. Yeah, look, mission drifts, it is, you say it's very subtle. It happens slowly. And all of a sudden, if you st- stand back in a helicopter view of the ministry and you look at it and you go, gee, we were meant to be here, but we're actually here. And how did we get there? One of the things we've found helpful, and it's a very s- small thing really, but when we hire somebody, uh, staff, we'll say to them after maybe a hundred days, uh, a couple of months, two or three months. Now you've been here. Evaluate us. Are we staying true? You've come in from outside because sometimes it needs that external view. Right. Um, can we um, come in from outside? Are, are we? Is this what you expected? Are we staying true to what we say? We're true. When you were interviewed for the job, we said this. Are we living by that? So sometimes it needs that external view, mm. but it does need um, it does need your leader, your senior leadership team, including especially your senior leader, to have time to step back from the doing stuff and view it from a helicopter, if you like, right. and say, "Boy, we, we're off track. We have to have times of doing it." Unfortunately, we just get so busy sometimes, and the schedule's so tough that we just keep going what we're doing. And it might be another great cause that's causing us to drift. Uh, usually, it's not usually a bad thing. It's usually a good thing that just causes you to get off track. And as, as Christians, there's lots of great causes. You've got to know what, 
what's my why and stay with that. So we would try to get um, to be as, as stand back as we can and, and observe what's going on yeah. um, and, and pick it up. But it's not, it's not sometimes you just need an external voice. Right. I, I just kind of randomly thought of this question, kind of a story-based question. Tim, do you have any stories from your time at Compassion that is just of radical life change, of just a cool, encouraging story that you could share with us, uh, of just life change while you were in the ministry there? Wow. Well, there's great life change within our own ministry in Australia. I mean, I, I say to people, I've said to people in Australia and in our team, if you've been here six weeks, six months, six years, 16 years, if you leave here a bigger person and you started, I'm happy. So I want that to be the, the kind of overall guideline. But in terms of our wider ministry, gee, I could tell you many, Zach, but I'll, let me tell you one. It's a, a young guy in, in Rwanda. Okay. Uh, his name is Remy Paul. And Remy is an albino Rwandan. So that means he's, he's white, but right. he's, he's from a Rwandan family. And so when he was born, his, his dad left his mum because he thought he mom had been unfaithful so he left he left the family and left them very poor and Remy was brought up just by his mum and his family was uh, very poor but as you know you'd live with that stigma at school he went to that, he lived with that stigma he he uh um he grew up he was he was you know stigmatized he was bullied high school you know as primary school and then secondary school he, he he went to the stage where he was he was sponsored as a young young boy about I think about five or six years of age, but it's still, he still lived with this internal trauma in his in his life so much so that he he turned to drugs at one point of time, talked to, thought about you know ending his life etc. But somebody got alongside him in a local church, just supported him and encouraged him, and said put your head down and your tail up and work hard. So he worked through hard through, graduated from secondary college, secondary school, went to university. Um, studied psychology. He's now a clinical psychologist in Rwanda. Wow. And he's now now helping, working with the government to help, I think it's about 500 albino Rwandans who are in the same boat as he is. Mm. He's going to, in a program to help them. So when you see life transformation like that, you just sit back and go, wow, that is, that is God at work. I'm yeah. glad I'm doing what I'm doing. It's fantastic. And it's hard not to get behind that. And it's hard oh, to absolutely. build a non-healthy culture when you got stories of life change like that. Yeah. I love it. Tim, that's, one yeah, last that's, question. That's another, that's so, another way, sorry. So that's another way that um, you can continue to keep the culture before people is telling stories. Mm. Tell true story. You do this here in Australia, and sometimes it can seem like a routine task, but look at the difference it makes in the lives of people. And yeah. that's, a, that's a great way. Oh, I love stories. Stories just grab people's heart and yeah. I, I love it. One last question, Tim, that we love asking all our leaders. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Looking at 20-year-old <laughs> Tim, what are you wow. telling him? That's a long time ago, Zach. So <laughs> no, so it's not that long ago. Think through that. A couple of things I would say I could do a 20-year-old Tim. One would be um, understand where your security and identity lies. Mm. Um, that... It, it really depend, It really lies in who God says you are and, and, and how God sees you, not on what you do, what titles you have, because um, what your successes and your failures, they're the things that tend to identify you when you're 20 and you're driven and you just want to go and you know change the world and take the hill. Um, so I would say understand where your um, uh, security really lies, that it's not in, in what you do, it's in who you are and who God says you are. And I think the other thing I would say to my 20-year-old self would be make sure you build good margins in your life. 
mm. because of the, for the same reason, if you like, because you just want to go and go and go. And I would define a margin as the, the gap between your load and your limit. Most of us go at that age with our limit. We just want to go to the max, work to the limit all the time and not leave margins in your life, whether it's emotional margins, financial margins, you know, time margins. And we just go, go, go. And I would probably say to them, and I've probably had a tendency in my life uh, to for a workaholism, you know, for yeah. a fair bit of the time. And so I would have said to myself, Tim, don't be stupid. You know, put some good margins in your life. Mm-hmm. If I were to ask my wife, she'd probably have five or six or seven more things. But they're the two <laughs> things that probably that probably uh, come to mind. For me. Oh, That's those are good. Security and your margins. Mm. Yeah, so many people fall into finding their identity and what they do rather than whose they are. And then yeah. some and other people get so worked up in, in work and what they do that they 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 burn out and they don't have time to to develop relationships with people. I think those are two yeah. very important lessons we need to learn while we're young, but Tim, thank you so much for your wisdom and for your hey, time. My pleasure. My pleasure. I hope it's been helpful. <laughs>